All right, I'm going to sit down for another week here. I'm down to one crutch, although, yeah, you, you, my physical therapist who is here this morning probably is not applauding because I'm not supposed to be doing this, but it frees up a hand. God intended us to use these hands on something besides crutches. So thank you for that amen. Um, so I know I'm not supposed to be doing this, but it sure feels good to have a hand to do anything with. Uh, Well, this morning we are in the Gospel of John, again, John chapter 20. We'll turn there with me. If you've been a Christian for very long, you know, you know this principle, but you probably know it from the Word, that power is perfected in weakness. That's one of those two-edged sword kind of a things. Because I think if I asked all of us this morning, hey, how would y'all like some power? Would y'all like power in your life? How about some power, right? I probably, you know, the line would stretch around the building. We all want power. But God's means of achieving certain things sometimes passes through a zone that we wouldn't have asked for. And, you know, this gets illustrated not not in somebody with a questionable life. The great apostle Paul, is going to illustrate for us in Scripture a desire out of weakness to experience something in God, but it's out of his weakness. He's in a place, at some season of his life, he's in a place where he feels inadequate, probably struggling would be a word that would describe where he was, kind of at the end of himself, so much so that, you know, he, this is a man who wrote quite a bit on suffering and led the way in helping us understand how we suffer for the glory of God. Uh, but yet there was a place in his life where he cried uncle and said, enough. En- enough with the weakness thing already. I, I want to be done with this and begin to ask God to stop what was happening. That's where he was. And it's in that moment where he gets this revelation from God. Paul, my power is perfected in weakness. That word perfected doesn't, doesn't mean blemishless. It's more of a maturity or completed word. So God is doing something in weakness. It's almost as though weakness is the seedbed out of which power grows. God plants his power into weakness, and out of the weakness comes the power of God. Now, when we're in John chapter 20, that's going to get put on display. If, if Pentecost is the opening act of the church, if that's opening day, John 20 must be about the dress rehearsal. Right? Now, if you've been a part of a big production, if you've ever been a part of the Christmas cantata, or you grew up being a part of musicals and dramas, you know, it, it's, it's something a little bit disconcerting when the dress rehearsal is full of problems, Right? I mean, you've been practicing all this time, and you're coming up to the big event. We're going to take off, and we're just right on the heels of it, and it's dress rehearsal, and people are forgetting their lines, and they're not doing well, and the lights don't work correctly, and the music thing came in late, and you walk away thinking, oh my, this is going to be a bomb. This is just going to stink. Well, John chapter 20 is like dress rehearsal time. In a sense, this is almost the last of the times that the, the coach is going to be there, 
or the director is going to be there. Jesus has been leading and directing them all this time. He's about to ascend to the Father. Now, when, when Acts chapter 2 and the birth of the church comes, Jesus isn't on hand the way in which they've been used to him being on hand. So the director is gone, and you're up on the stage now, and you're alone, so to speak. So this is dress rehearsal, and, and John 20 is not going well. It's filled with problems. It's filled with weakness, but it's on the verge of huge power. And so last week we we looked at the power and the faithfulness of God in the resurrection. Remember? Power of God to overcome our dance with death. The faithfulness of God to do it, even though God's people weren't looking for him to do it. He was still faithful to do what he had committed to do. And there's an aspect of that I want us to see more clearly again this week. This week we're going to look at human weakness and the call of God. And here's the question. Can you really do what God's called you to do? Can you really do it? And we'll come back in the end and we'll look. I mean, there's layers to the calling of God in your life. Biggest layer, most important, is we're called to God. We're called to follow him. We're called to be a disciple. Can, can you really do that? And then within that, you're called to some specifics that uniquely have to do with who you are. Seasons of your life. You're called to be a child in a home. You're called to, through the teenage years. You're called to be a single person walking after a manner that's worthy of God in that season. You're called to be married. You're called to a job and to be responsible on that job. There's these callings of God. Can you really do what God has called you to do? I know sometimes we don't feel like we can. Look here in John chapter 20. Let's look first at the weakness of man, and then we'll look at the call of God. Part of this we read last week, but I'm going to read it again. John chapter 20. Verse 1. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were... They were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. Now, I'm going to pick up a few other thoughts here from this chapter, but there's, there's so much here that, that could be spoken of. I just want to, I want to highlight a dimension that is present that you, you, you can't ignore. And it has to do with all the characters that come to life here and get displayed in John chapter 20. Right? Noticeable in this first section here is the 12. Well, at this point, we're down to the 11. Remember, Judas has hung himself. 
the Bible refers to them as the twelve, this group. Noticeable about them is they're all absent from the scene. Right? We talked about that last week. The most glaring thing that can be said is on the morning of the resurrection, none of the apostles are present. None of them had put it on their calendar. Third day, rise again. Wow. Let's go check that out. So they don't show up for the resurrection. Now remember, no one on earth has been more invested in than these 12 men. No one has spent more time with the Son of God. No one has had more teaching, more behind-the-scenes explanation. When everybody else was dull, they got their own tutoring about the kingdom of God and what that parable meant and why it was important to them. They saw power and miracle after miracle after miracle in their lives. They heard Jesus clearly teach on the resurrection. They are the 12 apostles. The the word apostle means sent ones. These these are, when when we get to heaven one day, there's going to be some foundation stones on the New Jerusalem. It's going to have Peter and James and John. Their names are going to be on these stones. What a significant role they're going to play. Now, being sent ones means they're the ones that Jesus was going to send into the world with the gospel. So the apostles don't show up for the resurrection. And not only that, but the Bible doesn't really flatter these guys largely during this season of their lives. There's little phrases about them. They were, they were scattered. Remember the... You strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. When they show up in the Garden of Gethsemane, they take Jesus away. These 12 men run for their lives. They were hiding in fear. The Bible describes them as they're in the room together. This passage tells us they didn't understand Scripture. If we look in Mark chapter 16 as well as Luke, we find out even when Jesus has appeared to the women and sent them to the disciples, they still don't believe. Matter of fact, Mark says that Jesus had to rebuke them for their unbelief and hardness of heart. So this is not a real flattering description of these 12 about-to-be-sent ones launching the Christian enterprise in just a matter of a few weeks. John MacArthur, in his book, Twelve Ordinary Men, described five characteristics. Now, John can be blunt, and so he's going to be rather honest in his assessment of these 12 men. Uh, but quite honestly, he, he supports that pretty well. He says, we're inclined to look at this group with all their weaknesses and, and wonder why Jesus did not simply pick a different group of men. Why would he single out men with no understanding, no humility, no faith, no commitment, and no power? I mean, maybe not no, maybe little would be a better word, but they lack spiritual understanding. They were at various times thick, dull, stupid, and blind. All those terms or their equivalents are used to describe them in the New Testament. They were self-absorbed, self-centered, self-promoting, and proud. See, when I I read that list, I realize I could have been one of the (laughs) twelve. That's the qualifications. They spent an enormous amount of time arguing about who would be the greatest among them. Remember, the Gospels are very short collections of all that took, took place in the three years. And they were only together probably half of that time, a little more than that. 
So these short writings, and how many times do we hear about them fighting for first place and having arguments about this stuff? They, okay, uh, they spent an enormous amount of time arguing about who would be the greatest among them. They also lacked faith. Four times in the Gospel of Matthew alone, Jesus says to them, Oh, you of little faith. They lacked commitment. As soon as the soldiers came into the garden to arrest Jesus, they all forsook him and fled. This is the 12. Now, we we get a a statement in John 20. This is an implication, right? It doesn't come right out and say, uh, on the morning of the resurrection, please notice nobody showed up. But it tells us that by implication. But then it zooms in on one particular apostle. Look down to verse 24. It's going to zoom in on James. I'm, I'm sorry, Thomas. You're wondering what Bible I'm reading from. Verse 24. Now, Thomas was one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Right, now, again, here's Thomas. Unless I see and touch, I will never believe. Remember, Thomas has been with the Lord. He has personally been with him. He has heard him. He's been taught by him, and he has seen amazing miracles. Thomas, why is this so hard for you to believe? Well, Thomas, just like the other 12, is characterized if by any word, by weakness. What kind of men were these 12 sent ones to begin the church? What were they? They were weak. These were weak men that Jesus chose to invest in. Well, we're told about one other character here in John chapter 20, and that would be Mary Magdalene. Look in verse 11. She's actually the first to come to the tomb with some other ladies. Those ladies are not included in this story, but they are in the other Gospels. And then then it kind of zooms in on Mary here. Amongst all the other women and all the other characters in John 20, the story zooms in on Mary, verse 11. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stood to look into the tomb. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, 
Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Now, we encounter yet a different brand type color of weakness in Mary here. Just like we did in, encountered something of weakness in the 12, we encounter something of weakness here in Mary Magdalene. Now, now who, who is this woman? Right, we get introduced to her in, in Luke chapter 8, put this passage in your outline, I believe. Soon afterward, he went through the cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God. And the 12 were with him and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, Joanna, the wife of Cusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others who provided for them out of their means. So, so it's almost as this is the this is the traveling ministry team going from place to place, and it's comprised of the apostles, probably some others who remain nameless in the group, And these women, these women who have experienced the power and presence of God in such a way that they've been compelled to follow Christ wherever he's going. And out of their own means, it's it's as though they have cashed in bank accounts and taken things with them, and they have become servants to this ministry. They're, They're funding aspects of the ministry. They're participating in the ministry. So I think you could say, as a servant, Mary Magdalene is part of the ministry team with Jesus. Yet, yet at the dress rehearsal, she's weeping and out of touch with what's going on around her. She's been with Jesus as well. She's been taught. She's experienced his presence and his care. There's obviously a a tender affection there in her relationship with Christ. But yet, yet, this disciple, like perhaps some of us, is weeping And out of step, God's doing something incredible. And poor Mary has no idea what's going on. And she faces this question, why are you weeping, Mary? Now now answer that question. You've read enough of the story to know why she's weeping. Why is Mary weeping? Because she's come to the tomb and Jesus' body is missing. Now, knowing what you and I know, what should she be doing? Jumping up and down, right? She should be hooping and hollering. He's gone! Woo! I mean, just, it, it happened! This is what resurrection looks like! Instead, she completely misses it. And she's weeping. Now listen, had she shown up and found the body... She should have been weeping, right? That's the, sto- that's the correct storyline. She shows up. The seal on the tomb is still there. She's got to somehow get somebody to remove the seal, roll the stone away, and she goes in and finds a body. And that moment is the moment for weeping of all weeping. But he's gone, and she's weeping. And J.C. Ryle says, 
If Mary had found the seal of the tomb unbroken and her master's body lying cold within, she might well have wept. The very absence of the body which made her weep was a token for good and a cause of joy for herself and all mankind. But yet she is not experiencing joy and she is not rejoicing over the good of what's taking place. Now, Mary Magdalene might be any one of us in multiple moments of our life. Right, here, here's the character of her weakness that she brings to this moment. Two points I'll put in your outline. One, she's weeping over what she should be rejoicing over. She's weeping over something that she should be rejoicing over. Second, she's unaware of the nearness of God. Right, she's weeping and having this conversation with the angels, and you wonder what made her turn around. Right, was it the angels who when they see the Lord of glory, they're talking to her and then he is standing right next to her and and they do this and she turns around to see what made them do that? Right next to her is the God of glory and she is weeping and unaware that he is at work or near her. Does that sound familiar to any of us? Weeping over things that we should be rejoicing over and unaware of the nearness of God in our lives. This is a kind of weakness that's coming into which God is going to plant his power and his strength. Right? Frequently, put in your outline there, frequently our response when we cling to something God intended to die. See, in this moment, Mary is clinging to something. You know, it's, it's a little bit of a tough... Uh, understanding here when Jesus kind of softly rebukes her Mary don't cling to me you know almost as though you you can't touch me because I'm in transition you know but that doesn't really make sense because just a few verses later we're gonna he's gonna invite Thomas to touch him so you know what exactly is being corrected here it's almost to me what Jesus does is he quickly tries to move Mary on to Mary don't don't cling to me. Almost as though what Mary is doing here is, oh, Jesus is back. Oh, everything's going to return to the way it was. He's back. Jesus is back. It's almost like she, she doesn't get it. It's like, no, 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 Mary, don't cling to me. I'm, I'm on to the next thing. I'm not back. It's not going to be the way it was. I'm ascending. I, I'm, I'm going away. Now, he doesn't completely say this in the next few verses. We're going to find out, though, that his departure and his ascension, which John has already explained to us, is going to bring the indwelling presence of the Spirit. We're, we're on to that now, Mary. Me walking with you instead of the Spirit dwelling in you, uh, that's over with. Don't cling to that anymore, Mary. I'm done with that. I said, but you probably can identify with this. There are places and times in our lives where God intended something to come into our life that would die. And if God brought it at all into our life, our tendency is to cling to it in a way that God didn't intend to us to cling to it. Right? I mean, do you recognize in your own life you have a hard time letting things die? It's hard to do that. Listen, I'm one who can't stand to prune plants in my gardens. 
I know that's healthy, and all of you guys who know gardening, you know, God bless you, I'm thankful for people on the planet who care, but those of you who are into gardening, you know that there's something sacred and healthy for your plant. If you don't prune it, it actually inhibits the health of the plant. See, I just have a hard time with that. To me, you're just butchering that thing, and it looks like it's less alive now. It looks less, you know, death has been introduced to the plant. But it's a good thing, this dying. See, there are things that God will do in our life that, that he intended them to die. The Son of God was born in human form as the Son of Man for the purpose of dying. Mary, don't cling to me on earth. I've, I've accomplished. When I said it was finished, it was finished. I'm done with that. I'm moving on now to the next thing in God. Mary, you've got to move with me. Go and tell the other guys, get moving with me. Get on board with what I'm doing now. That's hard to do, though, isn't it? Because sometimes it's hard to interpret death ever as a good thing. You know, when Katrina hit New Orleans, a lot of things died. And it was really hard for many, many of us to see into the resurrected realm of, of what God had finished with doing and what he was about to do. For some of us, all we could see was this is over. I've lost this, this aspect of my life, the church or my job or whatever. You know, that's died and I don't know what to do with it. And we are weeping, failing to recognize a cause for rejoicing. God's about to do something bigger in our lives. God is near in this moment. He's not far off. He hasn't forgotten me. I'm weeping like he's just, no one knows where they've been, where they've laid him. No, Mary, he's, he's, he's right behind you in your life. Listen, I, you know, however death surfaces in your life, I mean, you guys have all got stories. If you go back and revisit them, you'll find that there were places when something died in order for something greater in God to emerge in your life. I can remember um, my wife and I, she just out of high school when we began to to see each other, and after about a year and a half of that, seeing each other, my wife decided, you know, I need to be done with this dude. I need, I need to move on in life. And so she introduced me with all of her insensitivity and harshness <laughs> to this concept of death. So, you know, after a year and a half of a relationship, you know, it's over, and much weeping and tears on my part through that. I'm not sure she was crying in Dallas where she was, but there was a lot of tears going on here in New Orleans for me because all I was in touch with was something was dying, something that meant so much to me was dying. What I wasn't understanding was that that relationship and the way in which we related needed to die. It needed to die. Because it could never become functionally what God wanted it to be because of the way in which I was holding it. How much dependency I had put on the relationship. How much I had put Gina in a position that God needed to be in that position. And she was occupying holy territory that eventually would have crushed her. She could never have withstood the weight that I would have put on her in that relationship. So what I didn't realize was the best thing that could happen for me was for that relationship to die. And for God to resurrect it later and to make it to be what he had wanted it to be. Now, in that moment, I'm not aware of the nearness of God. I, I'm, not, I'm not jumping up and down going, 
whoo, man, this is going to turn into something really cool. You know, our relationship is going to be great and we're going to end up being married. I figured it's over and she's gone. And wow, what was all that about, God? Why? Why did you even let that happen? Why, why did I even meet her? Why did that go on for a year and a half almost, more than that at that point? Well, because God knew that needed to go through a season. I needed to experience death in a category so that life could come. Listen, uh, that's true for all of us in multiple categories of our lives. God does things in your life that he intended them to sit in your life and die so that he might bring a life out of that that you didn't have any idea could come from that. Right? God has a full purpose here. It's, I love this thought from J.C. Ryle. He says, how often we are anxious when there's no just cause for our anxiety. Two-thirds of the things we fear in life never happen at all. <laughs> I don't know where he gets that stat from, but I thought it was fun. <laughs> two-thirds of the things we fear in life, they never happen at all. And two-thirds of the tears we shed are thrown away and shed in vain. Let us pray for more faith and patience and allow more time for, listen, the full development of the purpose of God. The full development. Right, too many times we're, we're halfway into something. God's doing something, but at this point, it's still developing. At this point, it's in the dying phase before it can become fully what God had intended. What God fully intended was not just for Jesus to die on a cross, but for him to be resurrected, ascended and enthroned over the universe, and then to send his spirit to dwell in us. So this is still a work in progress when Mary bumps into it, and she's full of tears and wondering where God is. Let us believe that things are often working together for our peace and joy, which seem at one time to contain nothing but bitterness and sorrow. Yet God is still, still at work in our lives. I can remember a number of years ago, my eyes aren't that great. Well, there's Ray and Linda. Um, there was a work in progress, and, and he would tell you this story, so I know he won't mind if I tell you the story. Um, Christian Pratt's was a work in progress. <laughs> uh, he was an interesting to look at work in progress um, with his bleached blonde hair and body piercings and drug habit and bent on destruction lifestyle. Now, if you're a parent in that moment, right, can you imagine what you're walking through in that moment? See, if you're a parent in that moment, it's, it's hard to see this is, this is a work in progress because you're watching something that looks like death. At that point, it looked like he's going to kill himself just with his lifestyle. He ain't going to make it through this. But he was a work in progress. God was taking him through a death so that he could have life, real life, in the spirit on the other side of it. And you see the guy now, and it's like somebody resurrected from the dead. Is he here? Huh? Not here? Um, married loves his wife, growing in God, reaching out to people with the gospel. I mean, you, know, you, you might be in moments, right? parents, you may be in moments where the work is on its way. 
And, you know, it just doesn't look real well formed at this moment. And, and if you're like me, you, you live trying to rescue your children from any form of death. You don't, you don't want any diminishment. You don't want them to suffer. You don't want them to decay. You, you, you don't want sin to ever touch their life, as though you have the power as a parent to prevent that. But you'd like to think that you do. You know, all your wisdom and care and boundaries will somehow keep sin from ever coming into their life. Well, you know, people who are alive all their life, they are convinced they don't need God. It's the dead people who need God, right? And so here we live trying to rescue our kids from ever experiencing this death. It's the death that makes them go, oh God, I need you in my life. And yet, isn't it hard to let your kids walk into a season of death where they're, they're going to experience something that dies in them here? And it's going to stink, and it ain't going to be pretty. But it's got at work. The full development of God's purpose is taking place in that moment. And you and I are walking through those processes, whether it's with others or whether it's in our own lives. So we, we encounter in Mary Magdalene yet another type of weakness. Right, this Mary Magdalene, who is lacking faith, out of step, not believing emotionally bent out of shape and yet God is at work and she is part of what is about to become the movers and shakers of the world I don't have any doubt that that Mary is, is one who's in the upper room the 120 that were in the upper room waiting for the spirit of God I don't have any doubt that she you know, I don't think you can find a better candidate somebody more passionately devoted to Christ She's probably in that room. The 12 are called by God to be the sent ones into the world with the gospel. Mary and these other ones that make up the 120, they're going to plant the church in Jerusalem from which an explosion is going to take place that's going to radically affect the world. These, these are weak people, but these are called by God people. It might help us a little bit just to realize, you know, what God's working with. The raw material of those whom God calls. Mary Magdalene. We learned a little bit about her past from Luke chapter 8. She was a woman who followed Christ, but before she followed Christ, she was a woman demonized. Seven demons are taken out of her life. Well, it doesn't tell us a whole lot, but can you imagine what Mary Magdalene is like? Before this, raw product, before Jesus calls her to himself. F.F. Bruce says, Only one piece of information has been preserved about her before the Passion narrative. Luke includes her in the number of the women who attend our Lord and the disciples during the Galilean ministry and provided for them out of their means, mentioning that from her, seven demons had gone out, which suggests exceptionally acute mental disturbance. Now I would hang on the word suggests. But I would have to say with Mr. Bruce that you know, the Bible actually in a few situations when someone has been delivered from demonic activity in their life, the Bible then says they were found in their right mind. So the you know, Bible doesn't go into a great deal of detail as to how acute mental disturbance and demonic activity would go together. But the presence of seven demons, the fact that they are identified that way, 
the fact that they would be affecting her life. Now, if you had met Mary, what do you think she would have been like before Christ, before God called her to herself? If you had lived in the town of Magdala and you had known Mary, she'd, she'd have been a little off. You'd have seen her in the marketplace. You'd have seen her from a distance. You know, she may have been talking to herself. She may have been doing something bizarre. She may have been having a conversation with you, though she didn't know you. You know, who knows what she would have been doing? She was a little off. And when you saw her, you might have walked to the other side of the street because you didn't know what she was going to do. She was disturbing to be around. Now, now what kind of hopes do you have for a woman like that? What's she, what's she ever going to be, Right? I mean, she's suffered, something's going on in her life, some things that people can't explain. She's peculiar. But yet she's called by God. And she's going to be in the scriptures. And she's going to be the first to show up at the tomb. And she's going to be the first to see the risen Christ. And she's going to be called on to give a report and to bear witness. Very few are going to ever see the risen Christ in bodily form. Mary Magdalene is one of them. You would not have thought that's where her life is headed had you met her before she knew Christ. The raw product of her life, you would have thought very limited future for this poor thing. But but not in the hands of God. Right? Her natural past does not define her God-given future. Her natural past, your natural past, does not define your God-given future. Listen, there, there are too many in the body of Christ who have taken the years of their life apart from Christ, who you were, the nicknames you had as a kid, the ways in which your family treated you, the alienation that you felt from others and you've come into the kingdom of God and it's, it's like you, you feel like you're just this mushroom of an existence. Listen, who you were in the natural versus who God's called you to be could be hugely different things. A whole new day in God for you that God ordains. This is a significant woman in church history that we're talking about today. You'd have never thought that if you knew her before Christ. Mark Johnson says the resurrection is the keystone that holds the arch of the gospel and the Christian faith in place. It is amazing that Jesus hands the announcement of this keystone to a woman. She is to be the very first person to put it in place. Such is the wonder of the gospel and the depth of Christ's love. Listen, seven demons are delivered out of this woman. You know, she's got to be wondering what kind of future would I have. To, but, but God has done something in this woman. There is an affection for Christ in this woman. that She is first to the, to the tomb. She is, yeah, she's clinging to him. She doesn't get what's going on, but her heart is toward the Savior in an amazing way. Listen, listen please, don't, don't ever let your dysfunction define you. When God calls you, he will plant his power into your weakness. 
Because God says his power is perfected in weakness. What you thought would be a limiting factor may be the very thing out of which God is going to bring forth his greatest glory in your life. Because that's how God operates. I'm going to put this note in your outline. Too many live their lives under the governance of the past rather than the pronouncement of the gospel. Too many people live their lives out of the governance of the past rather than out of the pronouncement of the gospel. A new kingdom has come into your life. If God has saved you by his grace, no longer, no longer define who you once were as who you will be. It's the reason why oftentimes you find in scripture Jesus changing people's names. Because they're a new person. No longer are you that. Well, if, if the raw product of Mary Magdalene's life was that, what about the 12? <laughs> what's, the, what's the raw product of their life? What kind of past did these guys have? What kind of resume are they bringing? When Jesus decides, I need 12. I'm going to have more disciples than that. More are going to tag along with me. I'm going to minister to a bunch. be 120 in the upper room. But there's 12 that are going to uniquely be apostles and are going to be sent ones, trained personally by me. Let's see, what kind of resume do they need to have? Remember, these guys are going to lay the foundations for the church, right? The doctrines that we believe are apostolic and prophetic in nature. So these guys are going to handle the doctrinal theological foundations that you and I are still living out of today. What kind of resume might you need to have? Well... Apparently not a good one. And Mr. MacArthur says, these were perfectly ordinary men in every way. Not one of them was renowned for scholarship or great erudition. These were not learned men. Remember when, in, in the book of Acts when they start preaching? that They call these men uneducated and untrained men. Actually, in the Greek, they were ignoramuses, <laughs> is what the word in the Greek means. So these were not impressive individuals. They had no track record as orators or theologians. In fact, they were outsiders as far as the religious establishment of Jesus' day was concerned. They were not outstanding because of any natural talents or intellectual abilities. On the contrary, they were all too prone to mistakes, misstatements, wrong attitudes, lapses of faith, and bitter failure. They spanned the political spectrum. You know, if Jesus shows up, he's got to... He's got to pick Republicans, right? I mean, isn't that the case? He's got to go after the most conservative arm of the political world. I mean, when you look at this, you, you find out Jesus colors way outside of a lot of our lines. One was a former zealot. Oh, okay, maybe. A radical determined to overthrow Roman rule. But another was a tax collector. Virtually a traitor to the Jewish nation and in collusion with Rome. Now, can you imagine? I wonder if those two were roommates. <laughs> on long mission journeys together just for the fun of it. You know, Jesus pairing those two off. At least four and possibly seven were fishermen and close friends from Capernaum, probably having known one another from childhood. Yet with all their faults and character flaws, as remarkably ordinary as they were, these men carried on a ministry after Jesus' ascension that left an indelible impact on the world. Power perfected in weakness. Now, not only true of Mary Magdalene, not only true of the twelve, but true of everybody who's ever been a Christian 
Look, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. True of us. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Some 25 years later, when God calls to himself, the raw product that he calls still sounds like these 12 ordinary men. Sounds like Mary Magdalene got issues and weaknesses. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. It says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Right? God chose weakness. God chose the raw product of human weakness so that there'd never be a day that any of us could boast before God about all that's taken place through our lives. God chose the weak. That was us. So that he might display his power and his strength. Second Timothy 1 says, Share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That is such a mouthful right there. In whatever God has called you to, first to himself, because there would be layers of God's calling in your life, first to himself, to any ministry that he would call you to, be it apostles, prophets, pastors, a witness to Christ, servant in the household of God, or to the tasks that are uniquely assigned to you in seasons of your life, in particular employment situations as a husband and a wife, the calling that you have in that role, as a father or a mother, as a teenager through those years, as a single person in your 20s, whatever it is that God has called you to, he has called you into his own purpose by his grace. That's the greatest thing happening in that moment in your life. God has a purpose for you in that moment And he is bringing it about by his grace. Not because you have a great resume. Not because you came into this as a number one draft pick in whatever category you're in. And you're going to have a huge career because you've got so much natural talent to be this or this or this. You ever notice that that attitude is, is what sets on fire pride. And it sets it on fire in a way that you might not recognize it's pride because usually what it'll come out as is anger. Angry because of how you're doing. Frustrated. 
because of how you're doing. Well, why are you so angry and frustrated? Because I expected more out of me. I mean, I knew what I was doing in that category. I'm good at that. And then you're flat on your face, experiencing your weakness, weeping and sobbing, unaware of God, and you're angry. Because there's a lot of stock put in your own natural abilities. Listen, God didn't call you because you and I had great natural abilities. He called us in ages past by his grace to himself. And that calling dynamic is true whether you're called to be a pastor in this church or to lead a covenant group or to do an alpha table or to greet people at the front door or to serve children's ministry. That calling is into God's purpose by his grace. Not because you're a great raw product. None of us really are great raw product. You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. Why? To show forth the greatness of him who has called you out of darkness into his light. So in whatever it is that you're called to, right? I didn't put this passage spelled out in your outline, but you go back and look up Colossians chapter 3. Don't look at it right now. Where it says, put on then as God's chosen ones. You are God's chosen ones. Therefore, put on holy and beloved, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness. And there's this long list of what we're to, to put on as those who are called by God. And then it gets into particular details of this calling. Wives. Submit yourself to your husbands. Husbands, love your wives. Children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't provoke your children. Slaves, obey in everything. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. For, for you are called. You're called into those things. And, and in all those places, show forth the glory of God in them. The power and glory of God planted in what? In weakness. When Acts chapter 2 begins and the fireworks go off and we're dazzled because the church is exploding onto the scene, don't, don't, don't forget the dress rehearsal. Don't forget what was taking place just before the greatness of the church emerged. The raw product of human weakness was what God was dealing with. Still true in the calling that you and I have in our lives. God's powerful calling is joined to us with all of our weakness because his power is perfected in weakness. Now, let me, let me close with a thought here. That, that quote there from John MacArthur in your outline, I think it's in your outline. It, it sounds ominous because this big giant venture of the gospel, the saving word of God, is about to go off into the world. And it's being entrusted to people who are in John chapter 20. This doesn't sound like a good idea, does it? I mean, they're crying. They're not showing up. They don't understand. This, this, is, this is cause for sweat in heaven, right? The angels should be looking on going, oh, man. And, and, and the play opens when? <laughs> MacArthur says, there was no second string. No backup players. No plan B if the 12 should fail. The strategy sounds risky in the extreme. In earthly terms, underline that, in earthly terms, the founding of the church and the spread of the gospel message depended entirely on those 12 ordinary men 
with their obvious weaknesses. But Christ knew what he was doing. From his divine perspective, right? Here's the battle. You look at life through the earthly perspective or through the divine. His divine perspective, the ultimate success of the strategy actually depended on the Holy Spirit working in those men to accomplish his sovereign will. So on the one hand, you have human weakness. On the other hand, you have the Holy Spirit and the sovereign will of God. Now, now, which one are you looking at this morning? You staring deeply into your weakness. You've been studying it all of your life. You can explain it to everyone and often do. It's the reason why everything is going so poorly in your life and it's the reason why you're certain it will continually go poorly in your life for as far as you can see. Or just on the other side of this equation, are you looking at the presence of the Holy Spirit and the sovereign will of God? Because that's what's married in John chapter 20. The weakness of men. God is not closing his eyes. He chose these people. And he chose you. He chose your life and your marriage and your children and your health and the season that you're walking through right now. This 20-something-year-old trying to figure out who you're going to be. What you have right now is a profound awareness of your weakness in all those categories. Everybody, you get in touch with your weaknesses in all those categories. Whatever one you find yourself in, you find yourself weak. I, I just I was confessing my weakness last night to my wife. It didn't sound nice and it wasn't pretty. And it was filled with doubt. That's, that's how it usually comes out. Kind of that screechy sound you let the air out of a balloon, you know, and you pull it. That's kind of what I sounded like. My wife had to Try to pump some faith back into me in that moment. <laughs> but right present with weakness. Mary, go and tell them I'm ascending. Why is that such big news? Because I'm going to send the Spirit. And my will is being accomplished. And it will continue to be accomplished. Listen, some of us, you know, are we looking to that? Are we looking for, hoping for a plan B? Somebody else needs to do this. I can't possibly do that ministry. Somebody else has got to do that. I, I could never. Listen, if you're called to do it, there's no plan B. No, parents, there's no plan B. You can't just hand them off to somebody else. Now listen, if you watch the news... The government is trying to make the education system plan B for failed parenthood. I don't know why the society is the way it is. Because the world's trying to do something that God's not doing that. Listen, I don't have a plan B for me being a father. As much as I may feel inadequate, I may be like the Apostle Paul crying out to God in the moment of my weakness. And God is saying, Keith... It's out of your weakness that I launch power. I bring my glory out of weakness. That's what God's doing. There's no plan B for you being husband and wife except the power of the Holy Spirit and the sovereign will of God. That's God's plan. That's where my faith needs to go. 
in this moment. Now listen to this passage. Matt, you can go ahead and come up. Listen listen to this passage in Isaiah 46. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, listen, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. Right. This is in reference to a heathen king named Cyrus. He was a prince. He was a king over Persia. Right, you want to talk about weakness? God here is saying, I'm going to accomplish my will through this man who's not praying and fasting on the other side of the desert trying to get in line with me and perform my purpose. No, no, he's a heathen king. And yet, through him, he will cooperate with me fully and I will accomplish my will because I'm God. Not only weak, but anti Right? Some of us at least are here with our face pointed toward God just feeling like we just can't do this, but at least we want to do it. Cyrus is out to lunch. <laughs> he's not looking to do anything great for God. Now He's aware that there's a God. He has a little bit of an idea about who these Jews are. And he's about to send them all home after captivity. Send them back to where they came from. Because of God. Because God can take somebody who's anti him, not just weak, anti him, and still perfect his will in them. Now listen, if he can do that in Cyrus, can, can he do that in us? Can he do it in the guys in John chapter 20? Yes, he does. And power explodes onto the scene out of these very lives in John chapter 20. Now listen, I hope this morning we, we, we got in touch with weakness. I'm going to come back to this point in just a moment because some of us needed to, to see our weakness at the same time as we were looking upon the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives and the sovereign will of God in our lives. But I also want to highlight something here, and I won't take time to develop this thought, but I do need to say it because I think it's important for us. Do you see the variety of characters in John chapter 20? Do you find yourself in them? And secondly, do, do you maybe recognize some others in the church? who are like them. You got a variety of guys, right? You got the absent leadership team. I'd like to have them as your leadership team. They show up for the resurrection. It's worse than missing church. If you showed up this morning, everybody's walking around, where's the pastors? <laughs> Anybody going to preach today? Absent leadership team. You got John and Peter who run on ahead, but they're different than each other. John and Peter. And it gets highlighted. One's faster than the other one, you know. But, you know, John shows up and he's, I don't know, John, he strikes you as kind of a timid guy. He shows up at the scene and the stone's been rolled away and he kind of looks in, but he doesn't go in. Now, Peter shows up. Oh, you know Peter. A little different animal. Probably knocked John over on his way into the tomb. 
Didn't glance. <laughs> Comes with a name. Didn't just glance in. Just flies in. Right, now listen. There's this variety here in the church with us, right? Mary Magdalene shows up probably having some not so nice things to say about any of the apostles. Where the heck were they? I mean, show up. Of course, she showed up to help the burial process continue. But at least she showed up. Those other guys didn't even show up. Peter, he questions the call of John because he's so timid. Just jump right in here and look, dude. It's your problem. The 11, seeing Christ, multiple witnesses, they go to tell Thomas about it. I, I will not believe. So the 11 now, they're questioning the call of Thomas. <laughs> that dude can't be called, man. Look at him. He won't believe. After all that, Thomas, come on, man. Eight days later, I don't know, what, what kind of conversations did they have with Thomas for eight days? Questioning his call, Right? Well, listen to this. this. is a very humbling thought. And before I even read it, it's a humbling thought for all of us. It's a lot for me to wear. A lot of growth in this thought. J.C. Ryle says, Let us learn from the case before us. This is John chapter 20. To make allowances for wide varieties in the inward character of believers. To do so will save us much trouble in the journey of life and prevent many an uncharitable thought. Let us not judge brethren harshly and set them down in a low place, listen, because they do not see or feel things exactly as we see and feel. You ever do that? I've done it plenty. Let me read that again. Let us not judge brethren harshly and set them down in a low place because they do not see or feel things exactly as we see and feel. And because things do not affect or strike them just as they affect and strike us. You ever get a real burden for something in your life? I mean, overlooking the fact that you've been dull and insensitive in that category since you were saved, but all of a sudden you got a revelation. That that ministry needs to take place, doggone it. Then you're going to lead the charge. And now, all of a sudden, everybody who ain't doing that, you're wondering about their call, aren't you? It's like, I don't even know how you call yourself a Christian. You don't have any burden for that in your life? Humbly, you just got a burden for that yesterday. Where you been? Secondly, you ain't got a burden for that thing over there, and I do. I mean, isn't this the way we are as Christians? The flowers in the Lord's garden are not all of one color and one scent, though they are all planted by one spirit. The subjects of his kingdom are not all exactly of one tone and temperament, though they all love the same Savior, and their names are in the same book of life. The church of Christ has some in its ranks who are like Peter, some who are like John, some who are like Thomas, some who are like Mary Magdalene, and a place for all and a work for all to do. Let us love all who love Christ in sincerity and thank God that they love him at all. Let 
Now, let me go back to applying this to us who perhaps are struggling with, can you do what God's called you to do? Can you do it? Can, can you live in this season that you're in right now? Can you do it? Knowing the weakness that you're experiencing right now, knowing how you feel like you can't. Can you be in your marriage right now? Doesn't feel like when we got married, does it? Doesn't feel the same. And you feel distraught and helpless and like the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Rescue me from this weakness, God. You parent your children through the season that they're walking through right now? Can you survive through the season of singleness that has been discouraging and lengthy and weighting you down where what's screaming out at you is you just feel weak and incapable in this moment? Listen, it is into your weakness that God plants his power and launches his glory for his power is made perfect in weakness. Let's stand up together. Lord, as we close in just a moment in song, Lord, we probably came in here already in touch with our weakness, even if we hadn't put it into a paragraph, concise thought. Lord, we are frequently bumping into our inadequacy, feeling as though we are not fit for the task, it's not working, I can't do this. But thank you that while we're saying that and we're weeping and we're unaware of what you're doing, you have ascended to the Father according to plan. You've sent the Spirit according to plan and your sovereign will is coming to pass according to plan. So Lord, in the midst of our callings here, Lord, the ones that we're struggling with to fulfill, God, open our eyes to you not just to us. Lord, let us realize our weakness does not disqualify us. Lord, you chose us in weakness. And you called us in weakness. For it is in weakness that your power and your glory burst forth on display and we are amazed. Lord, Pentecost is just right around the corner here. And the world will never be the same. Your purpose continues in our lives. Lord, wherever we are right now in our weakness, Lord, the day of your emerging power and your glory is just around the corner, Lord, where you will put your glory on display in our callings. And in that moment, Lord, none of us will be able to boast except in your grace and your power. So, Lord, as we sing now, 
help our hearts to believe in Jesus' name.